Welcome to Bold Signals, a podcast about the people who produce, consume, and apply science. My name is John Borghi, and I'm a cognitive neuroscientist and a library postdoc. So you may have noticed that there hasn't been an episode in a while. There's many reasons for that. The biggest is personal. Uh, it's remarkably difficult to put a podcast together, especially a podcast like this one, which is mostly done in my free time, when I have a new little human to take care of at home. The second is a bit less proximate, but let me just say that it's been really hard for me to figure out where Bold Signals, a podcast primarily about people and their lived experience, fit into a discourse that, at least to me, increasingly places little value on either of those things. But that's maybe another conversation for an another future episode, and there will be future episodes, don't worry. For now, let's just get back to talking about this thing we call science. This week on Bold Signals, I talked to Marissa Rice. Marissa is a cognitive neuroecologist. In our interview, we talked about mentorship, interdisciplinary research, science art, and of course, prairie voles. Okay, so can you just introduce yourself by name and then a little bit about what you do? My name is Marissa Rice. I'm a PhD candidate in the Ben program at Cornell University, and Ben stands for Behavioral and Evolutionary Neuroscience, and that's housed in the psychology department. So kind of an ecologist, kind of a neuroscientist, kind of also a psychologist, sort of all rolled into one. So I, I do want to talk about that because it's an interesting definition of, of a program because I'm a neuroscientist who came through a psychology program and there was no ecology involved whatsoever. So I think we have a lot of ground to cover in terms of kind of what you do. But first I want to talk about how you came to do do it. And I think the 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 most interesting place maybe to start is the very beginning. So how did you become interested in in science, I guess generally, and then maybe behavioral ecology and neuroscience more specifically? Yeah, definitely. Wow. So for me a lot of it was just getting involved in Girl Scouts, actually, doing a lot of, I, I'm still a Girl Scout now, I'm like a lifetime member, what you call it, kind of did the whole way through, got my gold award, which is like the, the Girl Scout equivalent of an Eagle Scout. You know, I just, I always was going to these different programs, so Girl Scouts would put on these sort of outreach type programs in STEM where scientists would come and do all sorts of uh, activities or little, little experiments, and I was just, my mom was constantly taking us to those sorts of things. I just got really involved that way and just had this kind of, this hunger for it. And so my mom would find stuff about it and then ask me, you know, Marissa, do you want to sign up for this program? I say, sure. And even, I guess, my, in middle school, right before I went into high school, I signed up for this program at NASA Langley. It was like an hour from my house in Virginia Beach. And it was this cool thing on, like, uh, atmosphere and learning about water cycle and conservation and water reduction and all these like water waste reduction, all these cool things. And uh, from there, I, I got into a, a magnet high school. It was it was housed in my regular high school, but it was a math and science academy. So they really encouraged you to, you know, pursue higher level science classes than just what's needed to kind of pass your state boards or, you know, to graduate with a standard diploma. And then from from there, uh, in that program, in that in that high school program, you had to do a a capstone project the summer going into your senior year, um, and so I chose to do one at the University of Richmond. It was like the summer scholars program that they had, and it was basically an REU. But at the time, I didn't really know what that was. You know, being a sixteen year old, I didn't, I'd never, I didn't know, you know, I didn't even know anything about that. But it was, I took a biogenetics course, and so it was like we had class in the morning from like nine to twelve. We had like a lunch break at the dining hall, and then we actually did like undergraduate research as high schoolers, like in labs with paired with different people. And I thought, wow, this is it, man. I want to be an academic. Like this is perfect. I get to do science, and uh, you know, this this is what I want. And I, I told my friends uh, even back then when I was 15, 16, I was like, you know, I want my name in like a a, a Gen Bio textbook. You know, like you know, how you have like Okazaki fragments and stuff. I was like, there's gonna be some kind of like Rice theorem or Rice something somewhere. I just want, I want to be like immortalized in, in science history. Um, and so, and then, so with that, I kind of went into college knowing I loved biology, but didn't know where to even start. And I went to Virginia Tech for my undergraduate uh, science degree. I got a degree in biological sciences 
and they're great in that um how they set up their degree like i had a friend that was pre-med we were both bio majors but our degrees look totally different if you looked at our transcripts so your freshman year you take gen bio and uh, i had some ap credit so i got to kind of jump into some electives early but basically your sophomore cycle you had to take like uh it's like microbiology genetics um, evolutionary biology ecology and I think something else I'm forgetting right now, cellular and molecular, I might've said that twice, um, but it, it sort of like had this span of stuff and I was like, nope, don't want to do genetics, don't want to do molecular stuff, that's boring, nope, don't want to do micro, but I took an ecology course and I was like, wow, this is really interesting and then I took um, evolutionary biology and I was like, this is it, man, this is the kind of scientist that I want to be. At the time I was working in like a genomics lab as a like freshman, sophomore, and by my junior year I transitioned to like an animal behavior, like parasitology lab and and the rest was kind of history and, and just sort of focusing on that. And you might be thinking, okay, well that sounds nothing like neuroscience, what's going on there? <laughs> and so as I was I was applying to grad schools, there was uh, you know, I had a very um had a lot of really great training and mentorship. I was in a lot of uh, underrepresented minority type like STEM programs. So one is like LSAMP, the Lewis Stokes Alliance for Minority Participation. The other is like the Ronald D. McNair post-baccalaureate program. So both of those really train people from underrepresented backgrounds to, to be adequately prepared for a career in science. And so because of that, I had a lot of opportunities and it led me one way or another to they sell our like names off to other schools. Like it, it sounds really weird, but a uh, part of the way they have funding is they like are, are like, you know, schools can buy lists of names of like, you know, like road scholars or whatever, whatever scholars. And so people were sending me mail and, and sort of soliciting, Hey, well, this is our grad program from that. And so I looked at an offer from Oklahoma state university and interviewed at their zoology department and was really like knew I wanted to do something with like mate tactics and some kind of like female choice or so anything that kind of do with like sexual selection and like mating tactics. And I had a very specific list of what I wanted in an advisor. You know, I wanted to do field work and some lab work. I wanted hands on but not too hands off kind of thing. And yeah, I just I, I met my advisor during that interview and it just clicked and I, I just felt like this is where I want to be. And so he studies um, mating tactics and sort of evolution of monogamy in prairie voles, which are like a monogamous rodent, and they're really big in sort of the um, neurobiology of pair bonding and affiliation, autism research, lots of stuff like that. Um, and so I was interested in more of the field component of stuff he was doing with like spatial learning and memory. But then it was also like, hey, we also look at these mechanisms. So it's not just behavior. He's, he's more of a neuroethologist in that we look at animal behavior, but look at it in terms of not just its uh, like effects on fitness or behavior and reproductive success, but also what mechanisms are driving these behaviors in the first place. And so that's kind of how I dove into to, uh, neuroscience as sort of like a way to understand ecology and evolution better. It's, it's interesting when you're describing like your entry into neuroscience. There's a sense where both of us define ourselves as neuroscientists, but the work that we actually do day to day, I think, as neuroscientists, could not look more different. <laughs> you know, when I when I was working in the lab, I, I put people in MRIs and, and did like brain imaging type stuff, and so none of that involved pair bonding or <laughs> like it's a completely different kind of lab experience. Basically, is what I'm I'm getting at. It's nuts when I when I go to SFN. It's sometimes I I don't know if you've been to SFN meetings. Uh, you know, they're massive, and sometimes I'm just like. We, we're so different. There's so many diverse flavors of neuroscience here. It's, it's sometimes it's boggling. So before we kind of get to what your lab work looks like, you, you were talking about mentorship and like getting ready for a PhD program or, or getting ready for like learning the skills necessary to, to be in a PhD program. And I'm curious on what those actually look like. You know, could you just talk a little bit about what those programs kind of entail and, and what that kind of mentorship looks like? Sure. It's, it's, I mean, it's really special and, and I still keep in touch with a lot of those people uh, today and I'm, I'm very active in being in those programs now as a PhD student and, and trying to make sure, hey, do you need people for panels? Do you need me to meet with students? Because I absolutely know that my success, you know, in where I am today, I, I owe almost entirely to, to that tract of mentorship. And so 
so just to explain it a little bit, these are these are programs to sort of talk about how there are plenty of people who are capable of doing science and who are, you know, smart enough and, and hardworking enough, but you just don't know about it. And coming from, you know, a middle class family, you know, science isn't necessarily the career that, that people tell you about. You know, academia is very insular. And so a lot of these programs is about sort of getting people from different walks of life and sort of more or less socializing them to understand like, hey, this is how this is the speed of how this culture works. This is what it's about. And one thing that people say to me often is they'll ask me, what do your parents teach? And I'll pause for a second. Like, what are you talking about? And they're saying, you know, you are so well versed in this world that your parents must be professors. You know, my mom works in, in, in philanthropy and sort of like public health area. My dad was, you know, retired Navy. And, and it used to make me really proud to hear that, you know. Uh, I was like, oh, man, I'm fitting in so well. But then later it started to make me really angry. And, and it, it's like this very insidious thing that, that, that in order for you to succeed here, you have to be born into this thing. And, and that just made me so mad because uh, it's really disgusting to think about um, because we should be accessible. Science should be accessible, but you can't be what you can't see, you know? Um, and so what these programs do, uh, I was involved with LSAMP my freshman year and, and getting into it. I knew already, like I said, from my like REU experience as a high schooler, that this is the life I want. I wanted to be an academic. And so, you know, because of that program and its connections, I was working in a lab my like first semester of my freshman year and not just like washing dishes. I was like looking up cDNA, like libraries for poplar tree genome stuff, like running PCR, running gels, like was actually doing real science. It was funny because they were like Athenium bromide gels because apparently they don't use those anymore because they're like carcinogenic. So that's funny. Uh, total aside. But, um, but no, anyway, the, the program was, there's twofold, like, levels of it, like being African-American, part of it was sort of just letting you see the different opportunities that you have career-wise, but also teaching you the culture and understanding that like you can't do the same things that your white counterparts do. You have to you, you have to know that the rules are different for you and you have to sort of protect your brand and in a way protect your career. Like I, I had a, a closed door meeting with one of my mentors, like my senior year, I had messed something up in the lab. I think it was just something I hadn't followed through with and, and I was getting around to it, but you know, it was senior year and um, it was just kind of like, you know, doing whatever, what seniors do. And I had some leftover things from the summer that I hadn't really closed out and followed through. And apparently my research advisor emailed my, LSAMP advisor was like, hey, you know, she's letting this go. And I don't know, like, it maybe made a line or some sort of, uh, I don't know, implication that they would say that it would infect my, my recommendation stuff. And so I got like this very like urgent, like, you know, text, like come to my office now. And, you know, she got up and shut the door. I was like, oh, this is going to be serious. <laughs> like a closed door meeting. But she kind of looked at me, she's like, look, we need to have a black people meeting. <laughs> That's how she prefaced it. Well, it was very like this kind of off the record, you know. Um, but that those are the kind of talks that I often had to have. And, and it was so it wasn't just, you know, this is how, you know, you keep a lab notebook or this is how, you know, you, you show up on time or do this or do that. A lot of it was, hey, you know, sometimes you're going to be the only black person in your program and you're not just going to be Marissa. You're going to be representing how other people perceive black people can succeed in this program. As, as sucky as that is, but, you know, you have these other weights that you have to, 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 to carry and you need to be aware of that and how you present yourself. Um, they talk a lot about being in a fishbowl. And so, you know, if I'm at a football game or, uh, you know, in different areas, knowing that just because I don't see other people doesn't mean that they don't see me and they don't see how I'm behaving. And so, you know, you don't get to have the kind of like, you know, whatever, like frat boy, like white boy wasted, like, oh, yeah, I can like be crazy and go be professional. Right. It's like you don't when you're black, you don't get to do that because you know, you're kind of always have to be on uh, and, and be aware of your public persona because people can then say, oh, well, I saw her acting crazy out at, you know, wherever. Maybe she's not as good a scientist or as professional as you think. You know, so there, there was there was definitely like I think that's why I keep in touch with them now, because they did feel like your parents in a way or like this aunt or uncle that's really looking out for you and, and not just pushing you academically, but also helping you to learn like 
hey, this is kind of sucky, but this is the world you're entering and you need to know how people are going to perceive you as a person of color and how to kind of play the game accordingly. So, did want to ask you about kind of a, a slightly different type of perceptual issue and that's like how you perceive your, your work in the different stages that you've been through. So you're talking before about how at the beginning when you first get interested in science, you wanted like your name in a textbook. And I think that's the thing that a lot of us share <laughs> when we start out. Like you, you have kind of this grand dream of, of what you want to accomplish, and that changes over time, and your perception of what you're doing changes over time. And I was wondering if you could just speak to that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think when you start, we all think we're going to be these Nobel Prize winning, you know, life changing thing, like people. And I remember part of my REU experience when I was a McNair scholar, we had like a library training session and one of the librarians was, you know, taking us around teaching us how to use web of science and, you know, other databases and et cetera. And he said something that still sticks with me today. He said, you know, as you specialize, you're, you're going to learn more and more about less and less. And you eventually know everything about nothing. <laughs> and I, I feel like it's so true. And so, I think my over time, my interest has shifted to be sort of wanting to be the best at what I do and an expert in that area. And so more of less of, OK, I'm going to be in this textbook everywhere, but more of, OK, when someone hears that thing, my name is the first name that they think of, you know, like, oh, you're talking about neuroecology or cognitive, you know, behavioral ecology and like, oh, you know, Marissa Rice does that work with et cetera, et cetera, whatever. That's what I kind of I want to be known in that sphere. And I think what's interesting too, being in this psychology department, we have three divisions. There's like perception, cognition and development called PCD. And then we have like social and personality psych in addition to Ben. And, um, you know, it's funny sometimes like I'll we'll be interacting with some of the social psych people and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, so and so had a paper come out. Or did you know so and so's from this lab? And I just look at them like. I feel like you're saying that as if that's a really big lab. I'm going to take your word for it, <laughs> you know? And so you can be the greatest in, in, in your sort of your little field or pond or whatever you want to call it and still not necessarily make an impact that's that big even within the same department. Um, and so I think uh, I heard Hans Hoffman speak uh, at – it was a Indiana university does like this cool animal behavior conference every year in March. And there was a lot of big names that were there, uh, not this past March, but the year before, because they had a memorial sort of service for, um, or not service, like a, a tribute type, uh, symposium in honor of Jim Goodson, who's a huge name in sort of social behavior and neuroendocrinology. And, and Hans was giving a talk and he said, you know, the way we impact the future of science isn't necessarily through our papers, and through, you know, our talks that we give or whatever kind of like intellectual merit you want to call it, a lot of it is actually in our mentorship and our teaching and how we pass on those things to people coming after us. You know, we help make future scientists. And so I, I've really taken that to heart in that, you know, students that I've mentored are you know now doing PhDs at other programs and not, not that I feel like I'm responsible for that necessarily, but <laughs> right, I don't want to sound too... <laughs> but more just like you have an impact in terms of like your work ethic or just how you see ideas and, and wanting to impact science that way. I'm really definitely someone who subscribes more to like the NSF than the NIH idea of like, rather than being translational, really want to be transformative with one, some of my ideas. And so for me, um, a lot of my research, I want to sort of break beyond the sort of the preval world or whatever like sphere I'm working in now, but to sort of, I'm more I'm really into big picture stuff and wanting to see things uh, sort of fundamentally change how we understand uh, cognition and, and space and spatial learning and memory in, in ways that can transform and, and have kind of legs in all different fields. And something that, you know, someone could go to one of my talks and go, wow, that's really interesting. That's really cool. I wonder how that applies to my system. And, you know, they could be studying completely different things, different species, humans, animals, whatever. But there's something foundational and transformative in, in some of the ideas that I'm bringing to the table. Maybe not that they're they're novel or anything, but um, they're sort of integrating a lot of these different areas that have been around all the time, but no one's ever thought to connect in the way that I have. And then people can take that information and, and be inspired to 
do something cool with their research. You know, I, I that's the kind of act that I, I see myself having. So I do want to talk about Prairie Bowl World for, for a second, at least, because the more you talk about the work that you do, the more it sounds like the work that I used to do in some sense, but I definitely did not use Prairie Bowls as a model system or anything. Could you just talk a little bit about your work and maybe what it looks like kind of day-to-day, like in the lab, what what do you do um, and what does that look like? Sure. Um, so Prairie Bowls are studied in a lot of like pharmacology type neurobiology stuff in terms of oxytocin and vasopressin, these neuropeptide hormones that are um, modulate social behavior in the brain. And so there's a lot of research on affiliation and how you know, social bonding and things work and, and there's translations to autism or a lot of times uh, the, these, these species is not just monogamous, but they're biparental, which is extremely rare in the, the mammal world as well. So there's a lot of stuff that my lab does in particular on development and parenting. And so that's more of sort of lockstep with with a lot of the traditional prairie literature. But there's also another side of it that has, um, that's more about sort of ecology in the field. And that's really where I, um, my lab is trying to really plant a flag here in that there's a lot of dynamics and lots of great research, like naturalist research that was done in the seventies and eighties, just looking at how they move in the field and and looking at their mating tactics. So, uh, they are not just monogamous, they are socially monogamous. So what that means is males and females have multiple partners, uh, sexual partners, even though they have one social partner. So a lot of my research looks at uh, this sort of plasticity and mating tactic for the males. So you have males that either will stay with one female, their social partner, and guard her and and make sure no other males mate with her. That's called a resident. You can have like a roving resident who will uh, have a, a partner, but will leave and look for extra pair copulations and fertilization so they're they're called like you can call them rovers or wandering residents there's lots of different terms for them Uh, but then you also have these males that just don't pair bond at all and all they do is wander around and mate with females when their male is not there and so there's really cool stuff about what could create a resident or a wanderer and that's really the draw that i came into the lab with um, when I started is sort of trying to understand this. Is, is it some sort of like balanced polymorphism? Like, are you predetermined to be one of these things? Like, is it experience based and really trying to pick that apart from a mechanistic stance as well as a behavioral stance. So actually what I do is I do a lot of field work where I, I mean, it's winter right now, so it's not much of it day to day, but uh, but basically, I take the, the animals and we put radio collars on them, so these small little collars, uh, and I can track their movements in space in in like uh, how they're how they're moving within these semi natural field enclosures that we build, and so I can track how big their home ranges are. Are they overlapped with another female? Are they overlapped with multiple females? And I can bring them back into the lab and you know look at paternity, who sired how many pups. But on, and on top of that, I'm connecting their reproductive success to spatial cognition. So say I, in one of my experiments, I looked at how does um, operational sex ratio in the field impact spatial cognition. So if our hunch was being able to navigate through your world effectively and efficiently is super important for reproductive success, to find food, find shelter, find mates. Um, and so if we skewed that uh, operational sex ratio in that some animal, I think in one enclosure we had 18 males to eight male, uh, females. And then another, we had 18 females and eight males or something like that. I forget what the exact numbers are offhand, but basically in the enclosure where we had more males, when, after I trapped all the males out of the, the field and tested them in a spatial learning task, I used the Morris water maze. It's like a classic, uh, spatial task. What I found was that the males that were in sort of the high density or male biased enclosure performed significantly better than those that were in sort of like the low density uh, female biased enclosure. So suggesting that, you know, this selective pressure of having to compete with other males can in fact induce sort of a, a, a better need for spatial learning. So a lot of what I do looks at sort of adaptive specialization and that, if cognition, particularly moving through space, is important for 
a lot of fitness goals, which I think is a very obvious connection. Most people don't argue that like, what? You need to navigate space to survive? What? <laughs> but just sort of saying like, if you can do that better, better than your competitors, what does that mean? And then how can you specialize some of those tasks in the brain? How How is that modulated or mediated in spatial areas? But then on top of that, really getting into the social dynamics as well, we talk a lot about this socio-spatial connection and that it's not just for a monogamous bowl, you know, say, say not a, re- a wanderer, but just a resident on a territory, you're not just sort of, someone could say, oh, they don't need a lot of spatial memory because they're not out, you know, looking for more females in the same way, say, a polygynous species would, like a meadow bowl. But my argument is, no, they're actually using spatial memory a lot. You have to defend a territory. Territoriality requires not just spatial memory, knowing where your boundaries of your territory end and begin, but also where your neighbor's boundaries are. And is it the right neighbor? And are they where they're supposed to be? Um, and so this this sort of uh, marriage or, or integration of spatial information as well as social information, and the point that I've really been trying to hammer out in, in terms of this transformative idea in, in terms of incorporating spatial memory in a lot of what we do in every species is we are always physically occupying a single like space at a time and we're always surrounded by space. And so you really, you really never even get a a social context void of a spatial context. Like you don't get social information outside of a spatial context ever. Um, And so it's really neat to sort of tap into from a mechanistic side of things, the social hormones, I'm saying with air quotes, social hormones, because they do more than just social stuff. Um, but, you know, what are they doing in these spatial areas of the brain? They're they're expressed in the hippocampus. They're expressed in your retrospinal cortex, you know, areas that have been sort of exclusively studied in neuroscience as these navigation, you know, memory centers. What's happening with this connection? That's a, That's a lot of what I'm doing in addition to so uh, sorry you said day-to-day stuff so really during the winter months now December I'm obviously not in the field so a lot of it is analyzing data from my previous field season but also doing sort of focusing on the mechanism to spatial cognition side of things whether that's you know mediating the hormones or whatever uh, doing manipulations and then in the summer I kind of switch to the more ecology mode which is okay we'll do some pretests in the lab or we'll come up with whatever thing we're measuring this summer and then see how does that relate to actual real world space use for these guys and how does that relate to fitness that's that's really awesome like ecologist by summer neuroscientist by winter <laughs> You know, I, I always hate to ask neuroscientists about oxytocin and vasopressin because it's like such a fraught thing in the kind of popular science literature. Like oxytocin is the love hormone. And as a neuroscientist who did very different things than you, I was also very annoyed. <laughs> and so I can only imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's kind of like a double-edged sword, though, because... I wonder sometimes, you know, when I used to do parasitology stuff in my undergrad, I looked at it sort of infecting these snails and looking at their movement in water column type stuff. It was it was really cool research, but I feel like sometimes when I would talk to people then about nurses, they were like, okay, and like, why do I care? You know, and so sometimes I wonder, we kind of get, it's, a, you know, it's, it's, it's cumbersome maybe to have you know, a flashy or like sexy model system that people are like, oh, they're monogamous. Like we are oxytocin. That's that love thing. And so though we're tempted to roll our eyes, I think it's cool because like, hey, there's some common ground here and they're already showing some excitement. So, you know, maybe it's better to, you know, (laughs) kind of swallow your pride a little bit, take a deep breath, think, oh, that's cool that this is how you think of it. But actually, hey, it does some other cool stuff too. So sometimes I'm grateful for it because it sort of already gives you that, that first step in the door to kind of, you know, talk about science and do a little more science communication type stuff, though, though it is annoying, you know, (laughs) I don't know. Um, the other thing I want to ask about is like the the difference between so you're you're looking at prairie voles and I think a lot of the people who are interested in oxytocin like from a popular science kind of perspective are obviously talking about humans and thinking about humans um, and there's like work with oxytocin in humans which I hesitate to even bring up because it's so fraught and <laughs> weird but I did want to ask about like crossing that 
translational species divide when engaging in science communication type things? Like, do you find that that's a difficult thing to, to remind people, like, no, we're, like, this is all prairie voles, like, chill out, or this is very exciting because this is some prairie voles. Like, just what is your experience kind of crossing that, that, that boundary? Yeah, you know, I'm actually always outside of it. I, I've, I've told myself, you know, part of, part of back in undergrad when I was a McNair scholar and, you know, LSAMP scholar and stuff, they were talked a lot about how do you define yourself as a scientist? And I remember we kind of talked about this dichotomy of, are you sort of taxonomically driven? Like you love turtles and everything about turtles and you're going to study herps and it's going to be great. And you're just going to do everything about herpetology or whatever. Um, or are you more question driven? And I've always identified myself that way. And so though I work with Prairie now, I, I don't necessarily see myself as a, I, I say that like sort of colloquially because it's easy to grab some common ground, but I'm not necessarily a Prairie Vole person in the same way that I feel like some of my colleagues are really entrenched and this is where I want to make a stand. And so for me, it's really easy because again, I, I think of how spatial cognition is so ubiquitous. And so for me, I, I think about, I study spatial cognition and sort of socio-spatial learning and how that has consequences on fitness and, you know, sexual selection and mate tactics and di mate dynamics, but also looking at the mechanisms of spatial and social integration. And so I've actually had some incredible conversations with people about human research and what this could mean in terms of engagement. So in terms of oxytocin, I talk a lot about you know, okay, let's move away from this trust hormone, love hormone stuff and talk about if it is indeed modulating sort of paying attention to, to social cues, right? Like it, that it's, it's in these circuits that have to do with social behavior networks and social decision-making networks where it's, it's tied to these other uh, memory structures to help you to learn that, Hey, this is rewarding. Or I, you know, um, pay attention to this social thing what does that mean for humans in terms of how we move through space and how we pay attention to social context within certain spaces? You know, is oxytocin important to know, hey, when I walk into this room on this day, it's for this class on this day, it's for something else. Um, I think I talked to someone who was in HD, so like in human development, and they were talking about engagement in the car uh, in terms of, I know it sounds so random, like when I was a kid, there wasn't anything to do in the car except look out the window, maybe play my Game Boy, but I got like motion sick. But I think now kids, you know, they're they got TVs in the back of the headsets and iPads and all that. And you think about how do kids understand where they live? Like, could you ask a kid, hey, how can you get to Walmart? Like, how, like if you ask like an eight year old or five year old or whatever, do they have an understanding of their world around them? Or are they totally engaged in their devices in a way that maybe kids that don't have devices in the car, they have the sense of, oh, we go down this street, we go this way, we're headed towards grandma's house or we're headed towards the pharmacy. So, I, I mean, I have conversations like that with people every single day uh, because that's, that's really what I kind of have made my wheelhouse is that spatial cognition and spatial memory are important to everything that we do. And... I'm studying it now in prairie voles, but I can study it in anything, in anywhere, uh, ask the same sorts of questions and really pick apart some of these. I mean, the mechanisms will look different, right? I can't like inject oxytocin into a human's brain. Um, but, you know, you can you can look at fMRI data and it's cool to talk to some of the scientists and go, OK, well, if I wonder if I did a test, this kind of spatial test. What's happening in the scanner? You know, are, are these certain brain areas lighting up? What's happening? You know? Um, so I, I, I don't know. I feel like I don't have that, that problem much at all. Cause I don't, cause I don't define myself as sort of a prairie bowl guru, you know? I, I think that type of openness to, to exploring different systems and pursuit of your research questions is like a really interesting perspective to have. And I don't think I was necessarily thinking like that when I was in graduate school. So I do want to ask you a question that's sort of, I, I think, scary to PhD students. With your perspective in mind of like, you want to pursue these kind of questions, what what do you think comes next for you? Or what are you planning to do next after after grad school? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's not scary at all. You know, hearing my story from my children before, I knew I wanted to be an academic when I was 16. I just didn't know what kind of biologist. Uh, and so as usual, I've already kind of at least loosely have thought about what, what 
what what does my own lab what does my research program look like and uh sort of a dorky thing but i actually kind of already like typed out what my research aims would be and i met with my postdoc in my lab she's a great mentor uh to me and was like yo these are great like okay but there's some things you need to do and so honestly for me i see myself sort of bridging this gap of moving into more cognitive science research and more psychology stuff but sort of thinking of myself as being in sort of the soft sciences, if you will, social sciences, but asking them with the brain and sort of the mind and the training of an ecologist and sort of a hard scientist. I think a lot of this work is being done sometimes, and sometimes it's done well, but uh, I think sometimes as an evolutionary biologist, is that my background, sometimes I have a hard time reading some of these like evolutionary psych stuff. I'm like, have you guys even heard of evolution? Do you know how it works? You know? I mean, I mean, some of it sounds really kind of like, you know, I don't know, it's silly sometimes. I don't, I'm trying to be careful. I don't want to like make waves here. But um, and so honestly, I see myself trying to move more into uh, some human type stuff in, in the future, hopefully a postdoc that allows me the opportunity to, to, to really take some of these questions, but look at them in a human system, how we move through space, how does uh, social information impact that? And in terms of mechanism, like I said before, I can't really do a lot with, okay, we're going to go in and inject oxytocin and do this sort of hormone stuff. But I am interested in what does that look like in terms of a perceptual system, really seeing that as the mechanism, right? Because if you can control someone's gaze and control what they see, you can more or less control their behavior. And let me back up from that. I know it sounds really like, but I understand that a lot of what I do, I spend time studying animals and how they move through their environment and how it's not just about spatial cognition and memory. Before you get to that, you have to be able to sense, perceive, and encode your environment, right? Your perception of it impacts then the decisions that you make for how you will move through it and how you know, you get these other behaviors like pair bonding or whatever, whatever they all, you have to sort of sense your landscape first. But with humans, it's interesting because our environment is built, it's designed. Um, So I think there's so much untapped potential in just thinking about how we design environments and we could design them in ways that more or less get people to behave in certain ways. I actually am writing, well, wrote a paper, we're trying to get it published. Fingers crossed, we're looking at like trends in, um, cognitive science we're trying to put something together but basically i I wrote it in a in a class with a uh it was like a cognitive behavioral ecology class but i wrote it with a friend of mine she's actually was a master's student in urban design and planning and we just came together and was like man this is what you're the things you're talking about marissa in terms of how you know bowerbirds move these nests in a way to get females to view them and look bigger like we do that in design like we build you know forced perspective and negative space. Like there's all this stuff that we already do in, in architecture and design. So I would love to tap into some of that stuff too, but there, there's just a lot of richness. So for me, I, I see my lab is still asking some cool questions in different animals. I don't know what that would look like, whether it be invertebrates or mammals, fish, whatever, but also doing some human stuff too and sort of asking these questions in a comparative sense across different species, including humans, but really, again, tapping into that sort of how uh, really looking at perception. And I would love to do maybe like virtual reality. I don't know. There's so many ideas, but more or less, like I, I define myself as a cognitive ecologist or neuroecologist, whatever that looks like. And um, if you're familiar with Tim Bergen's four questions, I don't know if you are, but he sort of has like the, the your proximate mechanisms, but then you also have like your functional questions, your adaptive questions. And so to me, I'm, I want to do proximate and ultimate questions, the how and the why, looking still at mechanism, um, but maybe for humans, more perceptual mechanisms. And then also the function of how does it make you more successful and in, in, in prairie voles, it's just, you had this many more pups. That's pretty simple. Humans, it might get hairy, you know, how do you define reproductive success in a human or economic success? Like there's a lot of different ways to define fitness that I think there haven't been enough ecologists, evolutionary biologists to really jump into this, this world of sort of social psychology and decision-making and, really think about how these things are integrated. So that's where I see my trajectory. Uh, <laughs> it's a little scary, you know, cause I don't know anyone in, in the, you know, psych 
psych social psych world other than you know our little sphere here at Cornell which is, isn't a bad one to start with but, so there's a little uncertainty but I I'm, I think it'll be I think it'll be fun so I, I, I want to ask about the cognitive ecologist thing because basically what I want to ask about is is being interdisciplinary and as a cognitive scientist on one branch of cognitive science I don't think I really thought a lot about cognitive ecology until maybe after I was out of grad school or the fact that people were doing ecology in thinking about cognition at all. Like, I don't think I even had that in my head. <laughs> so I, I wanted, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about being so interdisciplinary, like not only just like crossing between ecology and social science and neuroscience, but also thinking like of these much more ultimate questions and thinking like, where does my research connect to urban design and planning? Like that's something I would never have thought about probably. And I just, yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Like how this has come about in your thinking, but also like maybe your thoughts about interdisciplinary work more generally. Yeah. You know, for me, I've always been a big picture thinker. And so that comes with its own caveats. I, I struggle with other things like like more tedious tasks. Um, even just reading a scientific journal can be like just one little journal article can be very difficult uh, because, you know, I read a paragraph and my brain is going, oh, that's connected to this thing. And that's kind of like this thing and that thing and that thing and that. And it's like, OK, you, ha- you came here with an objective. You were reading this paper for this you know, manuscript that you're submitting that's about this thing. And uh, so actually I read papers with sort of a notepad to the side that I can just write like a one line little thing so that it it quenches my like, you're not going to forget you wrote it down, but like stay focused here. It's, it's really invigorating, but sometimes can be crippling to sort of hone in on like, okay, Hey, Hey, you gotta, you gotta do this one thing here. Um, and, And so part of, you know, just, you know, doing my exams or my comprehensive exams, they call them exams at Cornell because we're fancy, I guess. Um, but is I had a trouble in terms of me being in a disciplinary, I see things very obviously connected that other people don't. And so when I'm trying to make an argument, I will often go from A to G and I think I've brought people on board and they're like, what are you talking about? And, and that's because to me, you know, B to E and then E to wherever, like those just, they're so intuitive. They make so much sense to me. Uh, and so sometimes being interdisciplinary is a struggle in that it takes some extra time to sort of like bring people along with me because they're not seeing the connections that I see. Um, but, but also part of it is frustrating in that there's always a huge literature that you're, uh, sort of under, <laughs> uh, like you don't know enough about and, and you, you don't have the time to, to know what all of these literatures you just don't. And so what I've been learning is just the beauty of, of collaboration in that, you know, this paper that I'm, wrote with my friend Bridget. There's no way I could have looked up all this stuff and had the knowledge that she had. It just wasn't going to happen. Uh, and so I'm, I'm actually looking forward to, I've, um, another friend of mine is doing like a urban design and planning thing. We've been talking about some of these ideas and I would be interested in, I think I'm going to move towards like making some kind of like journal club or consortium type thing where you can get these broad ideas together and make something, you know, tangible and deliverable and make something real uh, out of these connections. So I mean, what is it like being interdisciplinary? It, I, I, yeah, I guess that's the best thing. It's it's exciting, it's invigorating, but also sort of frustrating at times. And sometimes you, it's it's like that jack of all trades, master of none thing, where uh, you could feel like you don't belong in any of these places. But what I I think how I avoid that is saying, okay, I am sort of a classically trained ecologist, evolutionary biologist, and I'm just adding things to my tool belt, you know, like, Hey, I'm learning more about neuroscience now and understanding how oxytocin and vasopressin work, or I'm learning about these learning and memory systems. And I, I'll take that with me into this other world. So now I'm, you know, looking at urban design and planning and architecture with the lens of this, you know, well-equipped evolutionary biologist that does cognitive, you know, science too. Uh, and so that kind of helps me to stay grounded, to feel like I'm the same person, but I'm just bringing, I'm merging, I'm integrating these areas that people haven't thought about before with these connections, but I'm not necessarily um, becoming that that type of scientist. I'm just sort of adding that to my repertoire. And I think that helps me to sort of stay sane and not feel like I'm just kind of lost in all of these, you know, overstretched in all these different areas. 
Yeah, I, I think I wanted to take it a step further and ask about, like, we, we've been talking a lot about working, like, between different areas within academia and even things outside of STEM. So I want to ask about, like, science communication and outreach, because, like, as a, it, it seems, like, inevitable when you're doing anything related to behavior, like, people are going to want to talk about it, and <laughs> there's some interest in in like communicating to the, the the non-scientific public or like people who aren't working in labs day to day, however they define themselves or want to define themselves. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your, your thoughts about like science communication, outreach, if it's like something you think about, if it's not something you think about, how you regard the the outreach that's related to the work that you do, those kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. Um that's a huge part of, of what I, what I want to do, what I want to continue to do. And, um, it's, it sounds kind of crazy, but I'm going to just throw it out there. I'm actually in the process of, uh, Cornell has this thing called best and it's like broadening, ah, crap. I don't know the acronym, what it stands for now. It's embarrassing, but it's like broadening education beyond STEM or something like that. But it's basically it's like think tank that, um, if you're a PhD and you want to go beyond just sort of academia with science, you can go into science communication. They have a sort of division of that. They have a division that helps with entrepreneurship. They have a division that helps with um, science policy or like they have lots of different areas. And this is well oiled machine. And it's really cool and great resource. And so for me, I, I thought about, you know, I want to do science communication, but what does that look like for me? I know I'm not a blogger. That's not not going to follow through. <laughs> They're hiding blogs. It's just not going to happen. And so I was like, you know, maybe I can do something digital media. I can do like start a YouTube channel or something. Thing. And so that's something I'm, I'm looking at doing probably in the new future. Um, but then I thought, what if it's something bigger than that? So honestly, my dream to, you know, in, in five or however many years to have running as well as a lab is sort of this like, uh, I don't know if it would be a company or business. What does it look like? But basically, um, a whole sort of side of my work that's just science communication. That's um, dedicated to creating online content, like uh, whether that's digital sports or skits or music or whatever that is encouraging more science, but also even if it looks like uh, creating different connections to sort of create new consortiums or whatever, new ideas, new think tanks. And so I think in terms of science communication, I also see myself as maybe this like executive producer uh, of science or whatever. I know it sounds kind of lofty, but it, honestly in my head, I had these sort of three goals that I want to, you know, imagine, innovate, and inspire. And so imagining, uh, for me, I, I've been looking a lot more at like science art, like the sci art, like hashtags and trying to like kind of follow different artists and sort of, I have friends that are into like comics and like our actual like graphic novelists and things like that, that do art for that. So bringing in more of like, uh, science art and, uh, like my, my brother used to do like modeling and simulation stuff. So he's made me things for my talks, like a vole, like moving through the grass and be like, that was amazing. Where'd you get that? Why? I'm like, oh, I, I, you know, coaxed my brother into making it. I gave him a hundred bucks if he made me a, you know, <laughs> an animation. And so that's something I want to see, like really like make that connection. Like I'd love to see in the sort of the imagining part, like bringing more creativity to science and art and, and blending that world in that the more we can kind of get our stuff out. Um, I mean, think about how they draw dinosaurs or whatever in textbooks. Like you need artists to do that to make what we do come alive. And so that, and then like, that's the imagined part of it. And the innovate side of it is just, you know, thinking about these new connections, thinking about these new ideas, looking at urban design and how that relates to spatial cognition and all these behavior and mating choices or whatever. And then also inspiring. So taking this and making it accessible, not just to professors, kids, but going to these like Girl Scout events or AUW or 4-H and going into the communities and being visible, you know, so when when kids stand up in school and say, oh, what do I want to be when I grow up? It's not just I want to be a lawyer, a doctor, an athlete, but someone say, I want to be a scientist because I see what they do and it's cool and I can make a living doing that. that that's the point really want to harp on is because when you come from underdeveloped backgrounds, when you come from underdeveloped, underrepresented backgrounds, when you come from lower SES, you know, my mom was pushing me. She wanted me to go into like big pharma and like biotech because she just knew that was a thing with science, that that was something lucrative that I could support myself. And when I told her I wanted to be an evolutionary biologist, she was like, nah, what? Um, it was just like, totally not on board was like what it, it was like I might as well said hey mom I want to be an actor like that's how she was treating it. 
her, that wasn't in her world. She didn't know what that was. And until she actually was watching the daily show with Jon Stewart and it was after the BP oil spill and they tapped someone from, I think Tulane or LSU to come, who was an evolutionary biologist and evolutionary ecologist, I think. And she just all of a sudden was like, Oh, she can get a job doing this. And then she was my biggest cheerleader. So it's not just going into these neighborhoods or areas and saying, look, science is a thing, but it's talking to their parents and saying, this is a viable career. And there, there's support here. There, there is like, you know, there, there's, there's a place here for you and in in a place you can be successful. And I think that when you have that kind of comfort and security, like then you can really begin to inspire people because then their parents are like, Oh, this isn't just this weird thing that they got a hold of on the internet. This is like, this is a real, you know, that, so that's what, that's how I see science communication, not just as the inspiring part, but also innovation and, 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 and imagining. And, and I don't, again, I, that's this, I don't know what it looks like yet. I'm, I'm kind of putting the pieces together, working with best. Maybe I'll have like an LLC soon. Who, who knows? But yeah, I'm, I'm working on this sort of this idea that I have to, to come up with something really cool with those three things in mind. So, yeah. Yeah. That sounds really awesome. Um, when you were talking about Sorry, I'm just getting some feedback on the mic. Um, when you were talking about visualizations in your presentations that your brother had made, like two things I was thinking, I was like, wow, that's really awesome because so many academic presentations that I've seen are so boring to look at. <laughs> the other thing is like, oh no, like I think people sometimes underestimate the importance of engaging visualization and like sci art gets to some of this but like the reason I can say this with like a lot of confidence the reason that I got into the type of neuroscience that I got into was because initially I thought the the pictures were really cool looking you know it's it's really cool that people are thinking like people like you are thinking about like how can we make this more how can we do this more um, I'm, I'm really inspired by that actually oh yeah thank you yeah one of my good friends is um she is a an artist and um I'm giving a talk for like in, in our department, you give like fourth year talks and second year talks and et cetera, et cetera. I have my fourth year talk scheduled in January. And so I hit, I said, Hey, Lar, can you, can you draw me like a, a, a cool comic of like me being really bad at spatial memory? Cause it's, it's true. That's the irony is I talk all about the spatial cognition and it's like, I have none. Uh, I lose my car almost every time I go to the grocery store, I come out and panic and think somebody stole my car. And then it's, you know, it's like one aisle over. Um, and so we were just talking about what that looks like and for me to say, Hey, can I commission you to do that? I think that's it. I, I really, people say, okay, well, why don't we have good art? And like we used to like a hundred years ago. And I, I really would love to see us move towards like patronage again, you know, like someone, you know, like these guys that, that created these am- amazing, like arrangements and classical music, you know, they lived in someone's house and someone paid their bills and they just got to create art. And so moving back to that system, like in, in, I would love for science to be a push in that, to say, we need people to draw figures, to make animations, to make cool art that helps us express our ideas in a way that we could be a force funding. I mean, what would that look like to write in an NSF grant, to have money set aside to, to like as patronage for like science art for my, for my presentations? Like that's insane. Like even just saying it is like, it seems funny for that to be a line item. But why not? Like that is a good. That is that is something that they're investing so much time in in producing. And why do we just think we should get that for free? You know, it, it, it's it's uh, I don't know. So yeah, for me, it's it's definitely like, you know, I I would love to be able to be a part of something where you know I have some sort of database, like where I talk to the scientist, the, the science artist, and you know, a scientist could come to my page and be like, Hey, I want to do some kind of science art for my presentation. And they could look at links of different artists and their portfolios and say, okay, I want this person. Like, I want them to make this. Can you get in touch with them for me? And I can kind of broker like, Hey, this person wants you to draw a picture of a red winged blackbird is doing this. I don't know, whatever, like how much do you want for that? You know? And so, and so it's a way that like, you know, kind of have these rates of like, you know, cause a lot of like freelancing and, 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 commissions is like extremely like there's a lot of exploitation that happens there and i don't know i would love to sort of bring some like reputable like systematic like i don't know you know like i i I think that's something would benefit both worlds tremendously because you're right there's so many talks i'm like that's the ugliest figure i've ever seen who drew 
who thought that this was a coherent way to express like this social network in the brain? Like this is horrible. No, I don't know what you're, there's just a lot of arrows and letters, dude. Nobody knows what you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. I, I think I've, I've legitimately seen like a talk where it was a photo of a napkin with things written on it. And it's just like, okay. <laughs> so we've been talking a lot about you know, the connections within science and between science and like interdisciplinary things and science communication-y things. And I want to ask if you have any advice for somebody who is not themselves a scientist, but is interested in science. Like somebody who reads, you know, maybe popular science-y type things or is, is just generally interested in kind of the work that, that people are doing related to human behavior and, and maybe kind of related to the work that you do. And I was wondering if you had any advice for somebody like that for, for kind of navigating the, the, the world of, of science communication and finding information that's accurate and, and interesting. My advice would be to definitely check out um, primary literature. I think that's always the first step in something I try to tell my family members. And they say, look, this cool article. I go, I want to see the real article. Uh, so I, I would say really tap into these open source journals. So I know like uh, plus one is, is one that you can read actual scientific articles that, you know, you don't have to hit these paywalls. So a lot of times people try to search scholarly articles, you know, you open it, you're like, oh, that seems exactly what I want to know. So we, I would say spend some time on Google Scholar and, you know, articles for whatever topic you're interested in and try to see if you can get, if you can read papers um, on those things. I think that's kind of cutting at the source or, even looking at professional societies that are on uh, social media. So Society for Neuroscience and Animal Behavior Studies, a lot of these societies now that, you know, have these annual meetings have active social media pages where you can see people are, um, you know, tagging folks that are giving talks. And so I I do that all the time, like in, in sort of being interdisciplinary, there's always stuff you don't know. Right. So, when they have other conferences, like when I see cognition conferences or whatever, I I follow those hashtags to sort of see, and people will tweet about people's individual talks, like this person, yada, yada, yada. And and also I would say maybe make a ResearchGate account. That's a place where a lot of scientists themselves can tag sort of what their expertise is. And so you can search based off of you're interested in endocrinology or interested in human memory. I don't know. Um, A lot of these scientists on their own personal pages have published like prints of, of their own research that they can give out. So there's other ways to get around. There's free access to, to scientific information, but it's, um, sometimes it's hard to get to. So I I would say seek that out and try to find some of that. And then I guess my last question is if you have any advice again, (laughs) uh, if you have any advice for somebody who wants to do what you do. So somebody who's thinking about going into a career in science and is not sure maybe necessarily what to do. Do you have any advice for somebody like that? Um, yeah. I mean, this is, this is actually going to be a little bit different flavor of advice, not so much professional, you know, go to this place and fly here. Cause I think you can get that anywhere. But what I'm going to say is a little more personal, maybe more cultural in that, Science is, it's, it's a lot for the long haul and it can do a lot to you sort of psychologically and having to understand like who you are in the space of like, I feel like almost weekly we all feel impostery, you know, we, we feel like we don't belong or we're not good enough or people are better than us or we're faking it or whatever. And so the best advice I could say for being a scientist and wanting to get into this world is have a sense of who you are have a sense of your identity of, of not just your personal identity, but also your identity as a scientist and what you want to contribute to this field. Um, and hold on to that. And I tell my students all the time, you know, you don't ever have to apologize for your, your quirks because your quirks aren't, uh, you know, they don't make you quirky necessarily. They make you, you, and you should never have to apologize for who you are and sort of like be yourself and like, like let the let the world feel the weight of who you are and let them deal with it. And so when you can kind of push that aside, then you can really focus your energy and your effort on the actual scientist. You're not worried about how people perceive you or how you're representing yourself because you know who you are. Um, and I also will say like, in, in, 
um, embrace your diversity and uniqueness and, and all of those sorts of things because that gives you a unique and specific insight and a novel insight to how you address your questions and your research in a way that no one else can because they don't have your experiences, they don't have your background, they don't have you know the class that you took in college and the way you think. And so really value that you are special in the way that you think and understand science like you have something important to add to this community. And I think when you hold on to that, like you, no, nobody can stop you. You can do anything. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast and would like to help us out, please do consider leaving us a review and rating on iTunes. The more ratings and reviews we have, the more attention we get from the, from the iTunes algorithms, which really just means that more people will see and hopefully listen to the podcast. You can also hang out with us on social media, either on Facebook, facebook.com slash boldsignalspod, or on Twitter, twitter.com slash boldsignalspod. So you may have noticed that we skipped the usual segments that typically bookend the interview. I think that trend will probably continue, mostly because those segments take a really long time to put together. And if I only have a few minutes every week to devote to this podcast, I'd really like to put those minutes into the interviews. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you again soon.